Good morning once again. Another Lord's Day. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. We are recognizing today in the United States the 10th anniversary of the terrorist attack in, uh, upon our country in New York City. And it, reflecting upon that this morning, it, it hardly seems possible that 10 years of my life has transpired uh, since then. And being 70 years of age, why, seeing how quickly my time is coming, drawing to a close, another 10 years, and uh, will it be, will we be here? If not, I know where I'll be, all right? Okay. Turn with me to the 139th Psalm. This will be the second message in the series entitled, The All-Searching God. And today's topic will cover verses 1 through 6, the omniscience of God. The omniscience of God. Before we read the passage today, if you'll listen to that big word, it ends with science. Science means knowledge. Omni means all knowledge. So when we speak of the omniscience of God, we're talking about He alone possesses all knowledge. Reading from the 139th Psalm and beginning in verse 1 through verse 6. David states, O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassed my path and my lying down, art acquainted with all my ways. There's not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. In the first message, we pointed out that this psalm was penned by David, king of Israel, was sent to the chief musician in Israel to have the words put to music and perhaps to be used in the public worship of God. We also brought to our attention that many of the Jewish writers believe it is the best of all of David's psalm, even surpassing the 23rd psalm. It is believed to have been written at a time when David's reputation as God's king was being slandered by his political opponents. And so David is going to have his heart revealed, and he ends the psalm by a prayer. Search me, O God, see if there be any wicked way in me. When we're in a place of leadership and are criticized, we must be very careful in our response to our critics that we don't become guilty of what they're criticizing us of, but that we should place our argument against them in the eyes of God's understanding. Lord, you know my heart. Search my heart in what I'm about to say. 
We'll cover verses 1 through 6. Please leave your Bibles open there this morning as we go through these six verses and give a general description of the omniscience of God. And then the Lord willing, we'll come back next Sunday, same passage, same place, same time, and cover it in more extensive detail. Follow with me. Verse 1, David begins, O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Verse 1 states the theme of the psalm, that being God's perfect knowledge of the psalmist. And the next three verses, namely 2, 3, and 4, describe three aspects of that knowledge. Keep your eye on those verses rather than me, and I think it will help you as we just make these brief observations here. Three verses now describing three aspects of the knowledge of God about David. Verse 2, God reveals that he knows the psalmist's thoughts. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Verse 3, he knows the psalmist's ways. His actions are acquainted with all my ways. And verse 4, God knows the psalmist's words. There's not a word in my tongue, but, O Lord, Thou knowest it all together. So God knew everything there was to know about David. He knew what David was thinking. He knew what, how David was acting. And he knew what David was saying. O God, You have searched me. You alone can do that. After this, in verse 5, he begins to anticipate the theme of the next section, which is the omnipresence of God, and he breaks off from the pursuit of that idea to worship in admiration of God as given in verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain unto it. Make this brief observation on this. Confession before God and contemplation upon God is a great way of worshiping God. And it is that which can be done throughout our waking hours. Confessing our need of God and contemplating upon who God is. May that be the first thing that runs through your thoughts when you wake up in the morning, is begin your day worshiping. This is another day to reflect upon God and confess my dependence upon Him. Verse 2 now. He goes on to state this expression, my down-sitting and my uprising. God's knowledge extends to minute and sometimes unimportant actions. Some people have the idea that God's only involved in the big things, that which changes nations, rising up and pulling down nations. But here it tells us that God knows even when we sit and when we get up. In Matthew 10, verses 29 through 31, 
our Lord brings this up, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. I prefer the New King James here, without your father knows or is aware. It's almost like there's a word left out and not completing the, uh, the sentence. And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father's awareness or his involvement in it. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. <laughs> Is that not remarkable? Fear ye not, therefore, are ye of more value than many sparrows? <clears throat> if God is actively involved in the hatching out of a sparrow from an egg, and then in its demise, in its falling to the ground, just a little sparrow, how much more is he involved in your life and mine? Hmm? I've often wondered, as being an outdoorsman, is where do dead birds, what happens to dead birds when they die? How many of you walk out through the woods and just find dead birds falling out of a limb and, oh, there's another dead bird, he died last night? Hmm? That's always amazed me. Where do all these birds go to die? And why don't we see their bodies? Uh, the Lord will reveal that to me one of these days. I doubt if it will be in this life. God is interested in the little things. He's even interested in the number of hairs that we have on our heads. And as preachers have run that into the ground in their audiences, some of you, he won't have many problems numbering. Hmm? You never heard that before? Surely you have if you've been under the ministry of the Word in very long. Some have great heads of hair, and some you're balding. God has numbered the very hairs upon our head. He knows those numbers. And each time that I comb my hair and there's a hair gets stuck in the comb, why... God's aware of that. You said that's silly. God isn't. He's not involved in such things as that. That's not what David is saying here. God knows and is involved in the minute numbers of the hairs upon our head. He knew David, and he knows us down to the minute detail. We can't hide anything from him, even the little things. Look next in verse 2. He makes the expression, Thou or you understand my thought afar off. What does that denote? It simply means that God understands our thinking processes, which involves our thoughts and the motives behind them. And He knows them before we ever think them. The liberal will say He cannot do that. Even God cannot know or see things that have not come to realization. But that's not the God of the Bible. God not only knows what I think and the motives behind my thinking, but He knows in advance when I'm going to think and why I'm thinking those things. 
And he knows that all the way to the end of my earthly existence. Everything about me, David says, God knows. I have to break from my notes here and preach a little bit, all right? Stand amazed to wonder how God could then love me. Huh? A sinner condemned unclean. If he knows everything about me, that ought to be enough to make him vomit. I become repugnant. But no, he loved me enough to send his son to die and pay the sin debt for this person that he knows all about. That's the only thing, Brother Asa, that can cause me to be attracted to this all-knowing God is that in spite of of what he knows, he still desires a relationship with me. How consoling. How consoling. You understand my thought afar off. In Matthew 9, verses 3 through 5, we read, Certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether it's easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. Jesus knew what his critics were thinking. That means that he is putting himself in the same category as the God that David is describing In Psalm 139, and here this means Jesus is God. You see the logic in that. If Jesus can know what people are thinking, only God can know that. Therefore, Jesus himself is the God who knows all things. Also, over in John chapter 1, verses 47 through 51, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile, a definition of a true Israelite, a spiritual Israelite, one who has no guile. Nathanael said unto him, Whence or how knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou was under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Believe, for because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he said unto him, Truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Nathaniel says, Lord, how do you know anything about me? I've never met you. Jesus said, I knew you before you ever knew me. When you were sitting over there on the fig tree... And you were called, and Philip said, come, join our cause. I knew you. I was involved in that. Do you see the application here? A preacher preaches a sermon, and you become a Christian. 
Jesus was involved in that preacher. See that? It wasn't just the preacher working independently of Jesus, but the minister who preached the sermon, if you were converted under a public sermon, is the one that Jesus sent and was using to bring you to a knowledge of Christ. Philip is the instrument involved. And this amazed Nathaniel. Rabbi, you, you must be the Son of God, the true King of Israel. Jesus said, all right, if, if you believe that, hang around. You're going to see greater things than this about me. You're going to see the holy angels ascending upon me to, for instruction, receiving instructions, and going forth to minister my will. Do you see what he's saying? Is that this Son of Man that you're calling the Son of God, the angels are going to all bow down and worship Him. They're going to worship Me. And you're going to have your eyes understanding open, and you're going to see the glorious design of God's eternal purpose was to establish the race of Adam as His supreme servants over the angels, over Gabriel, over Michael, even over Lucifer, who was the highest, who fell. You're going to see and come to that understanding. That's why I want to hang around this Bible. Hmm? There's good things in here, and yet there's much more for me to learn as I seek to know the Lord Jesus Christ and know Him better because He knows what I need to know. Hmm? Study to show yourself approved unto God. Also in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, we read now when he, Jerusalem, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. Underscore that. He knew all men, and needeth not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Only Jesus can do that, because he's God. He doesn't have to have information conveyed to him of which he was unaware. Here's a group, they see the miracles that he's performing. And they profess faith in Him that He's the King of Israel. But Jesus did not commit Himself unto them. For He knew what was in them. He knew that as soon as the miracle ceased, they'd revert right back to their old ways. Except a man be what? Born again, Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one of those that saw those miracles. Nicodemus... It's not by seeing miracles that you come to know me. You must be born again in order to see the kingdom, in order to enter into the kingdom. I know all men. I wish I did. You know why? I wouldn't have recorded all the names that I did on the church rolls where I pastored. Because a lot of them proved they were not genuine. 
They went out from us because they were not of us. Had I had the knowledge of Jesus and somebody came forth and cried crocodile tears and got in the baptistry, I said, you're playing games. You'll never endure. You're not one of mine. I would never have enrolled that person as a member of the church. But I don't have that. So all I can do is take an external profession. Someone asked an old deacon when someone came forward and made a profession of faith. said, Deacon, you think you'll make it? You think you'll hold out? The old deacon said, Time and the devil will tell. Time and the devil will tell. Jesus knows all men and does not have to be told who is a genuine believer and who is not. Turn with come on down to verse three now. Thou compass my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. God's knowledge investigates all of our ways, our actions. He tries our walking and our lying down. He knows what is developing in our lives. Flip on over a couple of pages, unless you have a fine print Bible, to Psalm 142 and verses 2 through 5. The psalmist here says, I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. In the way wherein I walked, I have they privately laid a snare for me. I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Very consoling verse that has been so helpful to countless millions of God's people. When people misunderstand you and say things about you that are not true because they don't have all the facts... And they will not and cannot come to your defense. The psalmist says, you know, Lord, what is going on in my life. And when no one that I can look to for strength and understanding to try to explain my situation, no one there is to care for me, I'll call unto you, O Lord. Because you are my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. You know my path. You know my way. You know what I am going on through at this very moment. No one else knows exactly like you know. Hmm? How consoling that is. Have you ever been there? Are you there this morning? Is the path, the action that you're taking this very day, has it become so complex that you feel that you're all alone? That no one can really understand your grief, your pain. We as Christians 
uh, are not very wise uh, in some circumstances that a person loses a, uh, a husband or a, uh, a father or a child and we walk up to them and say, uh, well, I know what you're going through. You do not know what they're going through unless you have lost a husband or a child or a father or so forth. You don't know that. Only God knows that. Hmm? And if you have difficulties on the job, whether you're an employer or an employee, and you get so frustrated that nobody that you can speak to that can handle and address the problem. Uh, what about in school? What about in a marriage? You feel like that you're all alone and boxed in? This is what the psalmist is saying. You compass my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all of my ways. I said, O oh Lord, you're my refuge. You're my portion. You know. Now I'll run to you. Hmm? That's worth its weight in gold. That's worth more than that. I don't know what gold's going for now. How many of you? Asa, what's, how much is gold going for now? You got all that? Hmm? Oh, you don't? What are you grinning at me for? Well, some of the rest of you that are rich, while you come and tell me what, what gold's selling for, selling for a lot, but I tell you the idea that God knows your circumstances and you can run to Him, not away from Him, but He knows and says, I'm your refuge. Come to me, not the other way, just because I know. But come to me. You're my refuge. You see, he's opening a door. He's not shutting a door and causing us to want to flee from this God. It's, it's come. Come. Verse 4. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. God's knowledge accurately interprets every word at the instant it is uttered. God doesn't have to hear me say something and then he reflects for a moment and says, oh, that's what he means. <laughs> no, it's instantly. Instant. He has eternal knowledge of every word and he interprets it accurately. He never misunderstands about anything I say. He hears the word. He knows the motive. He does not need an interpreter to tell him what we said or meant. Think of all the languages of the earth, all the dialects. When I go to Mexico, I have to speak through an interpreter. I kid those dear people down there is that when we all get to heaven, everybody's going to speak English. And they take it in good humor. I don't know what we'll speak in the new heaven and the new earth. But I know this, God knows all languages and doesn't have to have an interpreter to tell him what I said and what I meant. Matthew 12, verses 37, uh, 34 through 37. I'll give you just a moment to locate that. For those of you that have arthritis, why you can uh, get it limbered up a little bit here, okay? 
turn to the pages. Matthew twelve thirty four through 37. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account of in the day of judgment, for by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Hmm. Just some little old careless word. We say hundreds of them every day. Hmm? Hundreds of them. Careless words. Somebody sneezes. I think somebody did right back there just now. Uh, the, the culture I grew up in is while well, you're supposed to say, Gesundheit, God bless you. I personally consider that a careless expression. What in the world do you mean for God to bless your sneeze? Hmm? It, it's a careless word. But we say careless things and, and all day long. And Jesus said, I'm taking knowledge of all of those things. I know every careless word that's out there. How in the world can this be any other being than God who is the God who knows all things? Huh? God's knowledge remembers our past and is acquainted with our future. Back in Isaiah chapter 51 Verses 1 through 3. Let me quote that for us. Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord. Look unto the rock whence ye are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. Look unto Abraham your father, unto Sarah that bare you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. You see what he's taking his readers to? Look back to Abraham. God remembers our past. Now following the text, but he's going to bless Zion in the future with joy and happiness. He knows not only our past by remembrance, but he also knows what our future holds. I don't know about tomorrow, but I know what? Who holds tomorrow? I can't change the past. And God knows that my future is set. What's going to happen to me if I'm here ten years from now is just as certain with God as what is occurring today. God remembers our past, and He also is acquainted with our future. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 through 12. For thus saith the Lord, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I'll visit you and perform my good work towards you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. 
Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. Because of their sins, why, his people are going to be sent down into Babylon captivity. This is Judah. He said, you're going to be there 70 years. Exactly 70. And then I'm going to cause you to return to the land. And they did that. Came back and rebuilt the temple. Wasn't as good a temple as the first one. But God says, I know the future for you. I know what plans I have for you. And I'll cause this to occur. And what I cause, it will stir up you to want to pray for. That's the mystery of divine sovereignty and prayer. When God is about to unfold his secret decrees, he stirs up his people to ask for them. Hmm? A marvelous harmony in that. To give you a certain end, a hope. And my hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. All other ground is sinking sand. My God knows the day that he opened my heart there in that high school classroom. And he knows the day he's going to glorify this old body. Give it a new body where there'll be no more aches and pains. No more fibromyalgia and all that goes with that. No more cancer. No more depression. All of that is gone. God knows that day is coming. Is that not encouraging? It is not guaranteed in this present age, but it's certainly guaranteed in the age to come. Our God remembers our past and is acquainted with all of our future. And when I'm talking like this, I'm talking to his people. Those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world have been brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ. For this cannot be said that he has designed good purposes for all men. If that's the case, then all we're dealing with is universalism. Won't be any hell. Everybody's going to be in glory. We know the Bible doesn't teach that. It's his people that he has ordained these things for. And I thank him for that. I thank him for including me. Verse 5. The psalmist said, and he laid his hand upon me. You've laid thine hand upon me. God's knowledge includes each unfolding event in our lives which he has decreed to come to pass. Lord, your hand's been laid on me. Hmm? Compare 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for you what? He careth for you. And I'm told that means he is caring for you. Not that there's just going to come a future time he's going to care for you, and he's not caring for you now. Cast all your care on him this very moment. He is caring for you. Am I speaking to someone here today that the mighty hand of God 
is resting heavily upon you. You're dealing with matters in which you can't get yourself out of. How did you get in those? Well, well, I guess it was the devil. So God didn't have anything to do with it then. Hmm? Well, if you just believed enough, Brother Gables, you wouldn't have fibromyalgia. That's God's portion for me. And even though He has sent it, I'm going to fight it every step of the way. Okay? I'm going to resign that if I have to ache and moan and groan the rest of my life, I'll do so. But there's still going to be days which I'm going to take aspirin. Dear lady in a church over in Georgia, lived to be about 90, one of the most exuberant ladies I've ever been around. I don't think that she ever had a blue day. And yet, she had all kinds of sorrows, lost her husband, everything. And uh, I asked her one time, um, I said, her name was Grace. I said, how are you called Grace? How are you handling your aging process? And I expected her to give me some little humble, you know, just a little little old lady answer. Well, I'm just trusting the Lord. You know, she said, Preacher, I'm fighting it every step of the way. <laughs> I'm fighting it every step of the way. If i got to grow old, I'm, I'm not going to grow old willingly. I'm going to fight it. Now, we, we understand that in the context. She loved the Lord and served Him right up until about her 92nd birthday or so forth. He laid His hand upon us. And Brother Asa, that hand will not be lifted until, listen, until it has accomplished the purpose for which God has sent it. Hmm? And when God has humbled us enough to where we have learned to trust in Him for this given set of circumstances, He'll lift that heavy burden. Casting all your care upon Him, for He is caring for us. Don't lose sight of that. Make that personal to you. Acts chapter 4, verses 26 through 29. The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against His Christ, for of a truth, against Thy holy child Jesus, whom Thou hast anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, the people of Israel, were gathered together. Listen, for to do whatsoever Thy hand and Thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto Thy servants that with all boldness they may speak Thy word. Do you see that the greatest sin that has ever occurred in the human race was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son? And yet that was ordained by God. Evil, wicked things. And yet God ordained that in that He used all the various ingredients in those cultures 
the Gentiles, the Jews, the leaders of the religious world, the political world, and they were all gathered together in unison who hated each other. But for this one thing, we've got to get rid of this man Jesus. But what they were doing, they were doing unknowingly what God's hand, His power, we'll talk about that in a later message, determined before to be done. The crucifixion of Jesus was not an accident. It was not a chance. And incidentally, it was not just something which God in eternity looked out in His great telescope of the future and said, well, I'll be, look at there, Jesus is going to be crucified. It was not based on mere foresight. God sees and knows all things because He has decreed all things. Known unto God are all His works from the beginning of the world. The heavy hand of God is upon us. Now let's conclude with a personal application. David says, Thou hast searched me. David here uses the personal pronoun, me, five times in these verses. He uses the expression my seven times and I one time. God's word of truth must be personally consumed into our personal lives for our personal soul to be nourished. This truth of God that He knows all things must not be left to live or dwell in the realm of the abstract. It must be made personal. And brothers and gentlemen, I believe this is where the great gap occurs in much of Christianity. How else do we explain all of the imperfections and the tragedies and the sins and the things that bring shame to Christ that come out and surface in Christian lives? We say of a person when they commit some atrocious thing, I would never have believed they could have done that. Why, he was a preacher. How is it that we who profess to know that this God knows all things about us can go right on and do things which we know are displeasing to Him? Hmm? I say we have left this knowledge in the realm of the abstract and have not made it personal. Consume it. Eat it. To where that we are aware that wherever we're at, God sees us. I tell you, my hearers, that ought to put a restraint upon our actions. One writer states this, and I agree 100% with it. It has been stated that theology must be translated into biography to benefit one's well-being. I like that down. You ought to write it down. Say it again. It has been stated that theology must be translated into biography in order to benefit one's well-being. You know what a biography is? It's a description of the personal events that has 
transpired in an individual's life. Don't leave your theology in an abstract realm. Make it personal to where it will become part of your biography. You meet the one and the true God. This is but another way of expressing what it is to know God. Do you know God? Now in conclusion, when properly applied to one's personal life, God's omniscience causes us to do three things. If this all-knowing God becomes personally acquainted and we apply this understanding, three things will manifest themselves. Number one, we will reverence or fear God. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord, that's where knowledge begins. Exodus 20, verse 12, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Now look at a companion verse. Leviticus 19.3 You shall fear every man his mother and his father and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. What does it mean to fear God? It means to honor Him. Honor your father and mother. Fear your father and mother. Give them reverence and respect. If we truly believe that this God knows all about us, then give Him that honor and respect. Fear Him. That will start you on the right path of the knowledge of God. That's what it means to know God. Do you know God? Second thing that this great knowledge will do, it will cause us to exercise careful conduct. In Genesis sixteen thirteen, we have a woman here that's burdened. We read, she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? 2 Timothy 2.19 Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. We that are in the reform movement, we love to hear that, don't we? The doctrine of unconditional election. God knows His people in such a way that they shall never be separated from Him. We, we like that part of the coin. But here's the other part of the coin. Those that believe that, there ought to be some practical theology. What is that? Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. (laughs) See that? Do you know the Lord in a personal, intimate way? Has this great theology been translated into your biographical description? Then it ought to have a restraint upon our conduct of how we conduct our business affairs, how we conduct our church life, attendance, our faithfulness, our giving, our marriages. Is it going according to the book? 
And lastly, the third benefit from the understanding of God's omniscience, it ought to cause us to stand in awe of God. To reverence or to honor God, to exercise careful conduct, to stand in awe of Him. Psalm 4.4, stand in awe and sin not. (laughs) Practical theology, that's what he's saying. Go on. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. You ever do that? Just lying there all alone, nobody talking to you, reflecting upon God. Oh, what peace comes from that. All's well. Psalm 33.8, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Psalm 119, verse 161. Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. Does God amaze you? Does he? When you reflect upon him and his omniscience, does it amaze you? It ought to. It ought to. While I was waiting to come to the platform this morning, a song came to my mind. Let me read it to you. All of us know it. I think we're going to have us sing it here in just a moment. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the world Thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, Thy power throughout the universe displayed. When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze, then sings my soul, my Savior, God to Thee, how great Thou art. How great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior, God to Thee. How great Thou art. How great Thou art. Does He amaze you? Oh, may it never cease. May you be continually awestruck. My wife and I just got back two weeks ago from a marvelous trip to Alaska a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience to see the beauty of God's creative order and reflect what Eden must have looked like before sin entered into the picture. The purity, the air, the beauty of the waters, the animals, the mountains, the streams, the grandeur of it all. And yet, as I reflect upon that, there's something that makes me stand in awe, that transcends all of the majesty of God's creation throughout all of outer space, the sun, moon, and the stars, and that is the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity into human existence. Why? Why? To demonstrate His great love, compassion, and grace for sinners like me. I pray 
Brother Walter, I never lose that awe. I'm glad God saved me. Are you? I'm glad He knew all about me. Didn't overlook anything and that everything that I needed to be restored to His divine favor and the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, is included in the life and death of Jesus Christ on my behalf. One day I'll be like Him, transformed into His image. Oh, the knowledge of God. He leaves nothing out. Let's close in prayer. Father, take these words and strike them deep to where they become personal to us, that you become our refuge, a shelter in a time of storm. And I pray for the hearers that are under the sound of my voice at this time, that whatever the great felt need is that is going on in their life, That they might look to you and to have consolation transferred to them. That whatever is occurring in their lives at this moment, that you're not ignorant of it. That your hand is involved in it in some way. And Father, as I was watching on TV last night and saw those tremendous towers of our American economic system in Washington, or rather New York City, collapse under the hand of some terrorists. And I saw the power involved in that. I thank you that I can look beyond that and see that you spoke one day and out of nothing came all of the galaxies the sun, the moon, and the stars, and everything that's in outer space. And you set apart an earth and put a human on it, called him Adam. You formed me in Adam's image. And that, as that power spoke, and out of nothing, something came into existence. I thank you for that day in which that in the life of this dead sinner, no spiritual life, you spoke again, and out of nothing you breathed into me the spirit of life. And I began to call upon you as my Lord and Savior. I thank you that you are a God who is great. And I bow before you this day. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.